Section 8 of Chapter 20 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 20, Section 8. The extraordinary ability with which, at the beginning of the year 1692, he managed the conference on the bill for regulating trials in cases of treason, placed him at once in the first rank of parliamentary orators. On that occasion he was opposed to a crowd of veteran senators renowned for their eloquence. Halifax, Rochester, Nottingham, Mulgrave, and proved himself a match for them all. He was speedily seated at the board of treasury, and there the clear-headed and experienced Godolphin soon found that his young colleague was his master. When Summers had quitted the House of Commons, Montague had no rival there. Sir Thomas Littleton, once distinguished as the ablest debater and man of business among the Whig members, was content to serve under his junior. To this day we may discern in many parts of our financial and commercial system the marks of the vigorous intellect and daring spirit of Montague. His bitterest enemies were unable to deny that some of the expedients which he had proposed had proved highly beneficial to the nation but it was said that these expedients were not devised by himself. He was represented in a hundred pamphlets as the daw in borrowed plumes. He had taken, it was affirmed, the hint of every one of his great plans from the writings or the conversation of some ingenious speculator. This reproach was, in truth, no reproach, we can scarcely expect to find in the same human being the talents which are necessary for the making of new discoveries in political science, and the talents which obtain the assent of divided and tumultuous assemblies to great practical reforms. To be at once an Adam Smith and a Pitt is scarcely possible. It is surely praise enough for a busy politician that he knows how to use the theories of others, that he discerns among the schemes of innumerable projectors the precise scheme which is wanted and which is practicable, that he shapes it to suit pressing circumstances and popular humours, that he proposes it just when it is most likely to be favourably received, that he triumphantly defends it against all objectors, and that he carries it into execution with prudence and energy. And to this praise, no English statesman has a fairer claim than Montague. It is a remarkable proof of his self-knowledge that from the moment at which he began to distinguish himself in public life, he ceased to be a versifier. It does not appear that after he became a lord of the treasury he ever wrote a couplet, with the exception of a few well-turned lines 
inscribed on a set of toasting-glasses which were sacred to the most renowned Whig beauties of his time. He wisely determined to derive from the poetry of others a glory which he never would have derived from his own. As a patron of genius and learning, he ranks with his two illustrious friends, Dorset and Summers. His munificence fully equalled theirs, and though he was inferior to them in delicacy of taste, he succeeded in associating his name inseparably with some names which will last as long as our language. Yet it must be acknowledged that Montague, with admirable parts and with many claims on the gratitude of his country, had great faults, and unhappily faults not of the noblest kind. His head was not strong enough to bear without giddiness the speed of his ascent and the height of his position. He became offensively arrogant and vain. He was too often cold to his old friends and ostentatious in displaying his new riches. Above all, he was insatiably greedy of praise, and liked it best when it was of the coarsest and rankest quality. But in 1693 these faults were less offensive than they became a few years later. With Russells, Summers, and Montague was closely connected, during a quarter of a century, a fourth Whig, who in character bore little resemblance to any of them. This was Thomas Wharton, eldest son of Philip, Lord Wharton. Thomas Wharton has been repeatedly mentioned in the course of this narrative, but it is now time to describe him more fully. He was in his forty-seventh year, but was still a young man in constitution, in appearance, and in manners. Those who hated him most heartily, and no man was hated more heartily, admitted that his natural parts were excellent, and that he was equally qualified for debate and for action. The history of his mind deserves notice, for it was the history of many thousands of minds. His rank and abilities made him so conspicuous that in him we are able to trace distinctly the origin and progress of a moral taint which was epidemic among his contemporaries. He was born in the days of the Covenant, and was the heir of a covenanted house. His father was renowned as a distributor of Calvinistic tracts and a patron of Calvinistic divines. The boy's first years were passed amidst Geneva bands, heads of lank hair, upturned eyes, nasal psalmody, and sermons three hours long. Plays and poems, hunting and dancing, were proscribed by the austere discipline of his saintly family. The fruits of this education became visible when, from the sullen mansion of Puritan parents, the hot-blooded, quick-witted young patrician emerged into the gay and voluptuous London of the Restoration, 
the most dissolute cavaliers stood aghast at the dissoluteness of the emancipated precision he early acquired and retained to the last the reputation of being the greatest rake in england of wine indeed he never became the slave and he used it chiefly for the purpose of making himself the master of his associates but to the end of his long life the wives and daughters of his nearest friends were not safe from his licentious plots the ribaldry of his conversation moved astonishment even in that age to the religion of his country he offered in the mere wantonness of impiety insults too foul to be described his mendacity and his effrontery passed into proverbs of all the liars of his time he was the most deliberate the most inventive and the most circumstantial what shame meant he did not seem to understand no reproaches even when pointed and barbed with the sharpest wit appeared to give him pain great satirists animated by a deadly personal aversion exhausted all their strength in attacks upon him they assailed him with keen invective they assailed him with still keener irony but they found that neither invective nor irony could move him to anything but an unforced smile and a good-humoured curse and they at length threw down the lash acknowledging that it was impossible to make him feel that with such vices he should have played a great part in life should have carried numerous elections against the most formidable opposition by his personal popularity should have had such a large following of parliament should have risen to the highest offices of the state seems extraordinary but he lived in times when faction was almost a madness and he possessed in an eminent degree the qualities of the leader of a faction there was a single tie which he respected the falsest of mankind in all relations but one he was the truest of whigs the religious tenets of his family he had early renounced with contempt but to the politics of his family he steadfastly adhered through all the temptations and danger of half a century in small things and in great his devotion to his party constantly appeared he had the finest stud in england and his delight was to win plates from tories sometimes when in a distant county it was fully expected that the horse of a high church squire would be first on the course down came on the very eve of the race wharton's careless who had ceased to run at newmarket merely for the want of competitors or wharton's gelding for whom lewis the fourteenth had in vain offered a thousand pistoles a man whose mere sport was of this description was not likely to be easily beaten in any serious contest such a master of the whole art of electioneering england had never seen
Buckinghamshire was his own especial province, and there he ruled without a rival. But he extended his care over the Whig interest in Yorkshire, Cumberland, Westmoreland, Wiltshire, sometimes twenty, sometimes thirty members of Parliament were named by him. As a canvasser he was irresistible. He never forgot a face that he had once seen. Nay, in the towns in which he wished to establish an interest, he remembered not only the voters but their families. His opponents were confounded by the strength of his memory and the affability of his deportment, and owned that it was impossible to contend against a great man who called the shoemaker by his Christian name, who was sure that the butcher's daughter must be growing a fine girl, and who was anxious to know whether the blacksmith's youngest boy was breeched. By such arts as these he made himself so popular that his journeys to the Buckinghamshire quarter sessions resembled royal progresses. The bells of every parish through which he passed were rung, and flowers were strewed along the road. It was commonly believed that in the course of his life he expended on his parliamentary interest not less than eighty thousand pounds, a sum which, when compared with the value of estates, must be considered as equivalent to more than three hundred thousand pounds in our time. But the chief service which Wharton rendered to the Whig party was that of bringing in recruits from the young aristocracy. He was quite as dexterous a canvasser among the embroidered coats at the St. James coffee-houses as among the leathern aprons at Wickham and Aldsbury. He had his eye on every boy of quality who came of age, and it was not easy for such a boy to resist the arts of a noble, eloquent, and wealthy flatterer, who united juvenile vivacity to profound art and long experience of the gay world. It mattered not what the novice preferred, gallantry or field sports, the dice-box or the bottle. Wharton soon found out the master passion, offered sympathy, advice, and assistance, and while seeming to be only the minister of his disciples' pleasure, made sure of his disciples' vote. The party to whose interests Wharton, with such spirit and constancy, devoted his time, his fortune, his talents, his very vices, judged him, as was natural, far too leniently. He was widely known by the very undeserved appellation of Honest Tom. Some pious men, Burnet, for example, and Addison, averted their eyes from the scandal which he gave, and spoke of him not with esteem, yet with goodwill. A most ingenious and accomplished Whig, the third Earl of Shaftesbury, author of the characteristics, described Wharton as the most mysterious of human beings, as a strange compound of best and worst, of private depravity and public virtue, 
and owned himself unable to understand how a man utterly without principle in everything but politics should in politics be as true as steel but that which in the judgment of one faction more than half redeemed all wharton's faults seemed to the other faction to aggravate them all the opinion which the tories entertained of him is expressed in a single line written after his death by the ablest man of that party he was the most universal villain that i ever knew wharton's political adversaries thirsted for his blood and repeatedly tried to shed it had he not been a man of imperturbable temper dauntless courage and consummate skill in fence his life would have been a short one but neither anger nor danger ever deprived him of his presence of mind he was an incomparable swordsman and he had a peculiar way of disarming opponents which moved the envy of all the duelists of his time his friends said that he had never given a challenge that he had never refused one that he had never taken a life and yet that he had never fought without having his antagonist's life at his mercy the four men who have been described resembled each other so little that it may be thought strange that they should ever have been able to act in concert they did however act in the closest concert during many years they more than once rose and more than once fell together but their union lasted till it was dissolved by death little as some of them may have deserved esteem none of them can be accused of having been false to his brethren of the junto while the great body of the whigs was under these able chiefs arraying itself in order resembling that of a regular army the tories were in a state of an ill-drilled and ill-officered militia they were numerous and they were zealous but they can hardly be said to have had at this time any chief in the house of commons the name of seymour had once been great among them and had not quite lost its influence but since he had been at the board of treasury he had disgusted them by vehemently defending all that he had himself when out of place vehemently attacked they had once looked up to the speaker trevor but his greediness impudence and venality were now so notorious that all respectable gentlemen of all shades of opinion were ashamed to see him in the chair of the old tory members sir christopher musgrave alone had much weight indeed the real leaders of the party were two or three men bred in principles diametrically opposed to toryism men who had carried whiggism to the verge of republicanism and who had been considered not merely as low churchmen but as more than half presbyterians of these men the most eminent were the two great herefordshire squires 
Robert Harley and Paul Foley. The space which Robert Harley fills in the history of Three Reigns, his elevation, his fall, the influence which, at a great crisis, he exercised on the politics of all Europe, the close intimacy in which he lived with some of the greatest wits and poets of his time, and the frequent recurrence of his name in the works of Swift, Pope, Arbuthnot, and Pryor, must always make him an object of interest. Yet the man himself was of all men the least interesting. There is indeed a whimsical contrast between the very ordinary qualities of his mind and the very extraordinary vicissitudes of his fortune. He was the heir of a Puritan family. His father, Sir Edward Harley, had been conspicuous among the patriots of the Long Parliament, had commanded a regiment under Essex, had, after the Restoration, been an active opponent of the court, had supported the Exclusion Bill, had harboured dissenting preachers, had frequented meeting-houses, and had made himself so obnoxious to the ruling powers that at the time of the Western insurrection he had been placed under arrest, and his house had been searched for arms. When the Dutch army was marching from Torbay towards London, he and his eldest son Robert declared for the Prince of Orange and a free Parliament, raised a large body of horse, took possession of Worcester, and evinced their zeal against Popery by publicly breaking to pieces in the high street of that city a piece of sculpture which to rigid precisions seemed idolatrous. Soon after the convention became a Parliament, Robert Harley was sent up to Westminster as member for a Cornish borough. His conduct was such as might have been expected from his birth and education. He was a Whig, and indeed an intolerant and vindictive Whig. Nothing would satisfy him but a general proscription of the Tories. His name appears in the list of those members who voted for the Sacheverell Clause, and at the general election which took place in the spring of 1690, the party which he had persecuted made great exertions to keep him out of the House of Commons. A cry was raised that the Harleys were mortal enemies of the Church, and this cry produced so much effect that it was with difficulty that any of them could obtain a seat. Such was the commencement of the public life of a man whose name, a quarter of a century later, was inseparably coupled with the High Church in the acclamations of Jacobite mobs. Soon, however, it began to be observed that in every division Harley was in the company of those gentlemen who held his political opinions in abhorrence. Nor was this strange, for he affected the character of a Whig of the old pattern, and before the Revolution it had always been supposed that a Whig was a person who watched with jealousy every exertion of the prerogative, who was slow to loose the strings of the public purse, and who was extreme to mark the faults of the ministers of the crown. 
such a Whig Harley still professed to be. He did not admit that the recent change of dynasty had made any change in the duties of a representative of the people. The new government ought to be observed as suspiciously, checked as severely, and supplied as sparingly as the old one. Acting on these principles, he necessarily found himself acting with men on whose principles were diametrically opposed to his. He liked to thwart the king. They liked to thwart the usurper. The consequence was that, whenever there was an opportunity of thwarting William, the roundhead stayed in the house or went into the lobby in company with the whole crowd of cavaliers. Soon Harley acquired the authority of a leader among those with whom, notwithstanding wide differences of opinion, he ordinarily voted. His influence in Parliament was indeed altogether out of proportion to his abilities. His intellect was both small and slow. He was unable to take a large view of any subject. He never acquired the art of expressing himself in public with fluency and perspicuity. To the end of his life he remained a tedious, hesitating, and confused speaker. End of section 8